Good afternoon. Welcome to the Eco News Report, KHSU's weekly program covering environmental issues that matter most on the North Coast and in our bioregion. I'm your host this week, Jennifer Kalt, Director of Humboldt Baykeeper. Before we get started, I want to address a big issue that came up recently, kind of out of the blue for most people, and that is the proposed land-based fish farm at the former pulp mill in Samoa. I've been getting a ton of questions and emails about this. So I just want to let everybody know that basically there really is no proposal yet for the fish farm. It's an idea that is in the beginning stages. The company called Nordic Aqua Farms signed a lease agreement with the Humboldt Bay Harbor Recreation and Conservation District to basically just solidify their access to the property while they start doing sampling of the soil because the, the areas, as you can imagine, as a former pulp mill, got quite a bit of contamination that Louisiana Pacific is still on the hook for. Then in six months or so, there may be some further movement on this, in which case we'll get some actual proposals. And we'll be keeping a close eye on this and letting everyone know as soon as we find out any new information. But right now, there really isn't anything to review or comment on, and we'll just see where this goes, if anywhere. So today my guests are two women who are calling in from Mendocino County, Naomi Wagner and Alicia Littletree Bales, who are going to be up here at Humboldt State a week from today to do the SHOT speaker series, and they're going to be speaking about women and the timber wars, feminism, and the frontline struggle to save the Redwoods. So that'll be here on campus Thursday, February 28th at 5.30 in Founders Hall 118. They're here on the phone today to talk a little bit about their backgrounds, history, what they're doing now, and what they'll be talking about here at Humboldt State University next week. So welcome to KHSU and the Eco News Report, and thanks so much for being on the show today. Thank you. Thanks. Great to be here. I'm excited to come up. Well, we're excited to have you. You know, the the timber wars, as we called them, are really an integral part of the history of a lot of people who live in Arcata and Humboldt County and Mendocino, of course. But we also have a lot of people who have only lived in the area for a few years and don't know the history. So why don't we start with just a little bit of the history for those people who won't even know what the timber wars were? Okay, that is absolutely true. I encounter people all the time, young people and older people who have lived here maybe even 10, 12, 15 years, and they have never heard of the timber wars, and they haven't heard of Judy Berry. So that's kind of an opening question if you want to know where to start. If you don't know about Judy Berry or the Timber Wars, you're kind of starting from a very recent slate, wouldn't you say, Alicia? Yeah, it's it's fascinating. We talk sometimes about the, the Redwood Curtain. When I moved out of the area, down to the Bay Area in 2009, and I was talking to people in Berkeley and San Francisco who hadn't heard about the Timber Wars and Judy Berry and her work. And that was shocking to me, but I guess I thought it was because it was behind the the Redwood Curtain. But a lot of it, too, has to do with the fact that it's been some time. We were throwing ourselves in front of bulldozers and since Max Sam left the county and, and all that stuff. So, yeah, I guess we have some time has passed. Yeah, and yet it's not really over. The timber wars are still happening today, and Green Diamond just purchased 9,000 acres of forest land near Garberville in the Sproul Creek watershed. And successors of Maxham in the 90s, uh, Mendocino Redwood Company and Humboldt Redwood Company, they're still cutting away. They're still spraying herbicides. 
and doing a lot of things that we are still very engaged in opposing. So I would say that the, the war part of it is kind of has been muted. It's nothing like it was in the 90s, but there's still a lot of room for direct action, a lot of room for protest, a lot of need for protest and for action in the courts. So you are both on the board of the Mendocino Environmental Center in Ukiah, right? Right. That's right. And you're both watching a lot of the timber issues still to this day, but they are very different than they were back then in terms of, well, there used to be a lot of clear-cutting. There was a lot of proposals for clear-cutting old-growth forests, particularly in the headwaters. Yeah. You know, so I know from interacting with a lot of students here, you're right. Even people here in Arcata don't know what Maxam or Pacific Lumber was. They just have no idea. I just want to emphasize that they still are clear-cutting. Clear-cutting is still a huge issue. It is by no means over, and Green Diamond is demonstrating that very aptly. And there's still threats to old growth, such as on Rainbow Ridge near Petrolia in the Matol watershed. It's very active. You know, they tried to cut old growth in Trinidad as well. And I know we want to talk about history, but it is so pointed for me how these issues still continue to be very live and, and, you know, we're still working. They do, absolutely. And what I really meant was Pacific Lumber Company lands are not being clear cut anymore because that was taken over by Humboldt Redwood Company. It's an issue, a very important issue right now is whether those companies even deserve to have their sustainable forestry labels from which they make an extra profit while not abiding by those rules. And it's very significant to me that, you know, a lot of the public believes that that sustainable label means that the company does not cut old growth and does not clear cut and does not use herbicides. And I have to tell you that those three things are not true. Really? Humboldt Redwood Company is using herbicides? and cl- I knew oh, they were using yeah. herbicides. Yeah, I knew that. But yep. it's, it's interesting when we're talking about this is a, a great illustration of how we think about the history, right? And we think about the timber wars and we think about after the headwaters seal, the timber wars were over. But what Naomi's pointing out is that actually a lot of the same problems are still happening. It's just that the, the original timber wars corporations, Maxam, Pacific Lumber, Georgia Pacific, and Louisiana Pacific have cut and run, basically. So there are new owners, but some of the same very terrible forestry practices persist. But let's talk about what we mean when we talk about the timber wars, even though, you know, the same kind of needs and forestry practices are still, we still need to be doing activism around forestry. It hasn't gone away. But when we talk about the timber wars, I think we're talking about a period at the, you know, maybe like 1989, possibly, to about 2000. 2006. There were still slap suits. There were still major actions in the Matoll. Yeah, well, I consider the Matoll as kind of the transitional part of what happened after the Headwaters deal. The orphan of the Headwaters deal. Yeah, exactly. So Uh, what we had was these three timber corporations who engaged in this liquidation logging practice of clear-cutting. In Louisiana Pacific's land, they were literally logging every size tree, baby trees and giant trees, and they were grinding a lot of them up to make wafer board. The kind of the war part of it was that Earth Firsters started to organize on a very broad scale to do community-based nonviolent direct action. And Judy Berry and Daryl Cherney were two of the lead organizers in that. And one of the reasons that a couple of Mendocino activists, me and Naomi, are, are part of this panel is because a lot of that organizing was done out of the Mendocino Environmental Center by women, yes, 
but the the response by the Timber Corporations was overwhelming. It was violent. There was violence against the activists in the woods. There were death threats. Judy Berry was the target of a, a car bomb assassination attempt that she just barely survived right on the eve of a campaign called Redwood Summer in 1990. The activists at that time were organizing to try to bring people from all over the country to behind the Redwood Curtains to draw attention to the liquidation logging that was happening here and the loss of the last of the ancient Redwoods. Yeah, so when we talk about that, we talk about this massive movement of forest protection, direct action activists, and the just outsized violent response by the timber corporations and local law enforcement against the protests. And it really did feel like a war at the time. It did. And if I could just add to that really succinct rundown of that period, Redwood Summer, originally it was called Mississippi Summer in the Redwoods. And it was very deliberately modeled on the civil rights movement and Mississippi Summer itself. The civil rights movement was a very big influence in the movement, even very early on in this area. The big reason why we declared ourselves to be nonviolent and took that route of publicly organizing mm-hmm. protests, community organizing, and getting the community behind us. And that was something that Judy Berry really brought to the movement, among other amazing things. So it's not surprising that and then she was bombed. Uh, the campaign was smeared as being eco-terrorists. And there was a huge, many months long media campaign to smear Earth First and Judy Berry and Daryl Turney to accuse them of carrying the bomb. And this happened actually right around the same time that Forest Forever was, was a statewide initiative to protect old growth. And the timber companies were very motivated to to make sure that that initiative didn't pass. And essentially, it didn't. It lost by a very tiny percentage, more in part due to the campaign that the timber companies undertook to undermine the environmental movement, including the bombing, which was a great distraction. And, you know, their intention was to scare people off. But instead, it brought more people, actually. (laughs) It, It really galvanized the movement. It certainly did. I was living in Berkeley when that happened, working on the Forest Forever initiative. It definitely did not have the effect of scaring people off. You know, it just made people dig their heels in and, you know, be even more supportive of the effort. Yeah, I wasn't an activist at that time. I was a high schooler and I was living in Sacramento. And I remember sitting on the floor in the living room while the news was on, on May 24th, 1990. And hearing about the bomb that had exploded in the Earth Firsters car and hearing the news reporter saying, you know, and they were carrying the bomb. And I remember looking at the TV and going, that doesn't sound right. That's not even plausible. You know, so it was one of those things where the day of the bombing, Judy, of course, was wheeled into to surgery at Highland Hospital in Oakland. Daryl was put into the Alameda County Jail there in Oakland. And activists swarmed to the courthouse. And they refused to let Judy and Daryl be falsely framed. They refused to let them be isolated. But I think the timber companies would have gotten away with falsely associating Judy and Daryl with terrorism if people hadn't stood up and refused to allow it to happen. It was really a great moment of showing what solidarity is capable of. And they stayed there for days at the courthouse, and they, they brought the death threats that Judy and Daryl had received, and they, you know, showed them to the news reporters who came, and, you know, they just made sure that the true story got out there. And then, even more, people came to Redwood Summer, and there was 3,000 people came to Fort Bragg to protest during Redwood Summer about forestry. 
It was a tremendous organizational task that we suddenly found ourselves in the middle of because we were kind of succeeding beyond our wildest dreams. And, Alicia, I remember some of the action camps. It's kind of blurred in my mind because there were so (laughs) many different places, but certain little vignettes really stand out to me. And one was in Grizzly Creek. We stayed in the state parks quite a lot, and they were very wonderful and supportive to us, (laughs) I want to say. I remember you, Alicia, arriving at the wee hours of the morning at 2 o'clock, and you had your car completely stuffed full of supplies and gear and donations and people. And they kind of all climbed out of it like a circus clowns coming out of the tiny car. All these things emerged. There was a young man who had been named Redwood. We all had forest names in those days. And Redwood, you had picked him up as a hitchhiker. He was from the East Coast, from Vermont or something. And Alicia gave him a ride. And he came to Action Camp. She said, hey, this is where I'm going. Why don't you come with me? And he became one of our best young activists and tree climbers. And that was the kind of thing that happened all the time. So with all the years that have gone by since those times, you know, thinking about it in retrospect, how do you see now the role of women and basically the type of, well, the type of situations that you had to deal with, particularly being women? Yeah, well, I think that it's really amazing that Anthony is organizing this and that HSU is is bringing us up there to talk about this experience because I feel like it's as relevant as it's ever been. In fact, I took a little hiatus from activism, but when Trump was elected, I kind of want to put a call out to my other, you know, comrades from those days that, like, we really experienced something special and we have skills that are really needed right now. So I feel like the experience of the Timber Wars, you know, we learned a lot. We learned about consensus process, about how to make collective decision-making. We learned direct action strategy, and we certainly innovated direct action strategy. And I watched the direct line between the kinds of long-term community-based, nonviolent direct action that we were doing, multiple actions every season, not any one, like, super blockade that was going to stop anything, but coming back repeatedly over and over and over again, day after day, season after season. And I watched the direct line between the innovative blockades that we were building and the Seattle protests of the WTO in 1999, where we ended up shutting down the entire meeting. (laughs) That was amazing. (laughs) It was like a pretty direct line between the work we've been doing in the Redwoods and the idea for that multi-affinity group blockade. Oh, I just get excited when you talk about that because that's exactly (laughs) what was on my mind. The power of the skills that we've learned and the way that those skills, especially the consensus process, by which I do not mean that everyone agrees, it's a way of disagreeing without disrupting. We've just found that to be tremendously important. It's fostered so much solidarity and sisterhood because it encourages trust and, you know, we try to be open, honest, and friendly, but we have this framework of how we communicate. And I've noticed that that is what creates these enduring yet changing affinity groups so that during the, for the Women's March, for example, we just called all the affinity groups and we all went down there as representatives of the Redwood region. So we have these relationships, and I would say that's the, really the great strength that women have brought to this. You know, we we may do heroic things, but it's not about the individual so much. It's about the group and the support and love that we give each other that helps us continue to be on the front lines. 
And I think we've really evolved since the Timber Wars as well. I'm really excited about the sophistication of the discourse around feminism, for sure. Like the stuff that the Me Too movement and Time's Up movement are talking about are very relevant for women in the environmental movement and any social justice movement. You know, we deal with sexual harassment and and different things as well on the front lines. And so that the Me Too movement's given us a a framework for talking about that and taking it seriously and realizing how important it is. And also around solidarity between non-white communities and the environmental movement, right? Naomi's done really exciting work with the uh, with indigenous tribes in the region. There's been a lot more understanding about about allying and allyship and intersectionality and understanding the overlapping and intersecting forms of oppression that affect people who aren't white. And so I just think we've come a long way and that we're even more sophisticated and more powerful than than we may have been during the Timber Wars. Absolutely. We're not as vulnerable. I guess I should knock on wood, but we're not as vulnerable (laughs) to disruption. And that's one of the wonderful things about our process is it really outs disruption. It makes it pretty clear who is sincere and who might be sent from somewhere else to disrupt us. And that's something that we had to deal with in the Timber Wars a lot was disruptors sent from the FBI. And listening to, uh, I was listening to, I don't know if it was Amy Goodman, of some NPR interview with the current FBI guy that just wrote the book about Trump, McCabe. And the thing is, I listened to the interview and I was like, wow, he's such yeah. an upstanding guy, butter wouldn't melt. And then right. I'm thinking, but this is the same outfit that bombed our sister Judy Berry. And we went to court and fought in a tremendous fight in which Alicia was extremely instrumental. And Judy basically won a lawsuit posthumously from the grave against the FBI. As we know the skullduggery of the FBI, and to hear McCabe painting himself so lily-white, it was just like I couldn't reconcile it. And so I went and I researched Andrew McCabe to see exactly what division of the FBI he was in, because I spent so much time with the FBI files and, you know, got to know the different agents involved in Judy's case so well, including deposing them and getting them to testify in court over the years. So, but Andrew McCabe, he was involved in the division of the FBI that participated in the what we call the Green Scare, which is an ongoing attempt after the Timber Wars to falsely associate environmentalists with violence in order to discredit us. Where the FBI considered the environmental movement the number one terrorist threat in the United States. That's something that I think about a lot when I hear talk about the Green New Deal because it's a very radical proposal, which I love. It's wonderful. It incorporates the best of the environmental understanding that we have, including the important role of social justice and equality in protecting the earth. You know, that jobs guarantee is a crucial part, and a a just economy is a crucial part of of turning around the climate crisis. And I realized, you know, environmentalism at its heart questions the way the society relates to the planet. And it demands that we come up with a system that does not liquidate our environment in order to give corporations profits, that that system is destroying the planet. So I don't know what's going to happen with the Green New Deal, but I think what's important for us to understand that it's a very radical demand and that the powers that be may respond to us in ways that are unexpectedly intense the way they did during the Timber Wars. Yeah, and and the name of that philosophy is, of course, biocentrism. And that was a subject that Judy Berry wrote about in her wonderful pamphlet, 
called Revolutionary Ecology, and she really expounds on the, you know, how she challenged the corporate owners of Maxam and Louisiana Pacific, and she said, you don't own these trees. These trees are 2,000 years old. They were here before, you know, you were a blink in the universe. And in doing so, I think she really fundamentally challenged the system, the capitalist system, that says it's okay to chew up thousand years old trees and make redwood decking or sawdust out of them. She challenged that whole concept of ownership that is the basis of of yeah, of capitalism and of the patriarchy that we live under. So she was extremely radical for her time and I'm just so delighted to hear, you know, her what I consider her ideas. I'm sure they weren't exclusively her ideas. But the things that we've been espousing and fighting for now um, gaining national prominence in in Congress in the Green New Deal, it's something that's you know a long time coming and can't happen soon enough. Some of the work that was done back then that always was pretty fascinating to me is the the work with labor unions and the the steel workers in particular, and you know the way we talk about intersectionalism now and you know, having these different affinity groups, as you were talking about. I wonder, you know, with the decline in labor union membership, I wonder, can you speak to that a little bit about how how the environmental movement is working with labor unions today versus back then? If I could go for a solution, I'll give you some time. That's something that disturbs me, and I think about it quite a bit, is that we're really not as an environmental movement, working with labor in the way that we used to back in the day, in the days of Headwaters, and when we had the alliance with the steelworkers. I mean, it's very weird to, you know, on in one way, to remember that we were against NAFTA as environmentalists when NAFTA was being done, because we foresaw so much environmental damage and also damage to U.S. jobs. And that was something that Judy was able to reconcile those two strains instead of having it be a conflict and an either-or. And that's another way that the corporations tried to divide and conquer and smear environmentalists is by saying that we are anti-jobs, which, of course, we're not. And, and there can be many, you know, environmentalism can exist among steel workers too, as we certainly found out. We were very proud to march in solidarity with them. But I can't say that we still have those connections and they have not really been renewed. And now they seem to be aligning with Trump. It makes it pretty difficult. What would you say, Alicia, on that subject? Well, I think I think that the social justice movement, including labor unions, has gotten a lot more. I think they've gotten a lot more sophisticated in their understanding of, especially environmental justice. You know, and that the fact that environmental destruction and the consequences of destroying the planet have real world you know, consequences for human communities. I think they've gotten a little further down the road or a lot further down the road in defining that. I don't think there's been a whole lot of progress since the Timber Wars in understanding the concept of biocentrism, which is what what you just mentioned earlier, that the Earth has a right to exist for its own sake and that we're only just part of the Earth. And and the idea that we can industrialize and think about the planet as our own personal, you know, natural resource smorgasbord. Yeah, that's the kind of thinking that that we really got to grapple with if we're going to create a sustainable society, that, that it's not just about how the environmental policies affect human communities, although that is very important, and it's, it's an equal leg on the stool. You know, the, the effect of human communities 
the effect on human communities and the oppression against human communities is part and parcel of creating a just society along with understanding our impact on the earth itself. And, you know, we're just, we're facing it. We're facing the barrel of the gun, really, because we have an extinction crisis coming up. You know, there's no, there's no money value necessarily that can be totaled up to, to say why we shouldn't allow an extinction crisis, but we know that, that extinction is wrong, you know, and, and so, yeah, I mean, you, your question was about organizing with timber workers. I do think that Judy really showed so much leadership to the environmental movement about why social justice and particularly workplace issues and justice for, for workers themselves is a central part of the conversation about environmentalism. But I think there's also a, another direction that that conversation needs to go to, which is why environmentalism is crucial to the social justice movement. And again, the Green New Deal takes us a huge step in that direction. Well, I've always thought that, you know, since everything that we have, that we have now on Earth that, you know, humans have made and made to happen has come from some of someone's imagination. It never, you know, it didn't exist, and then it did because we imagined it and, and then acted on that. And if we wanted to imagine a really green, sustainable, just world where everyone had enough and people didn't have too much, we could actually do it. And we have tremendous resources locked up in our so-called defense, or actually what they are is our institutions for violence and force. And if we were able to di redirect that, that energy, we would have the ability to make these changes. So it does come down to, to public will and this tremendous, I think there's a tremendous yearning of human beings mm. to actually have, you know, protect our beautiful, wonderful planet and to be able to live sustainably and find out what that looks like. But we're just facing these incredibly, you know, seemingly so powerful forces of death and destruction. And it is, it's a tremendously deep problem, but at the same time, our, you know, 15-year-old activists like Greta in Sweden mm -hmm. have made it very simple, you know. We need to direct our energy entirely towards restoring and rehabilitating the planet. And I think that that's what we will end up doing. You know, it will have the same effect on us as humans. In fact, we, you know, I don't think we can survive any other way if we don't really redirect our energy. And I think Judy, you know, she saw those things and said them more clearly than I can. And I, I want to say something. I want to read something very brief from the Revolutionary Ecology where... Nick Wilson, who is a photojournalist, and he wrote a, a eulogy for her, and he quotes Tom Hayden, who was a Democrat from L.A. and the, the chair of the Senate Natural Resources Committee in 1997 when Judy died, and he called for an adjournment of the Senate in honor of her on that day. And he ends up saying, he says what an incredible person she was and what a wonderful inspiration to all of us. And she says, we will sorely miss the energy she provided, particularly in negotiating that fog that envelops the headwaters for us today. That's before the headwaters deal. She had died before then. But she has left a legacy of dedicated activists who will carry her banner high. And I think that really describes us, that hmm. we're, we do carry her banner high, not, you know, as, you know, the supreme leader or anything, but I feel personally an obligation, and I think my my sister warriors do too, to continue her work and, and to put her principles into practice 
and I think that they've, as Alicia was saying, that they've have borne fruit and have evolved tremendously. That we're more sophisticated now, hopefully, and maybe we can rise to the challenge one more time. Well, that's a that's a great sentiment to wrap up with here. I just want to thank you both so much for being on the show today and for agreeing to come up to Arcata and talk about all this next week. So I can't wait. <laughs> it's going to be great to be back. Arcata's my old hometown. <laughs> so I'll be happy to see you. And thanks for having us on the air. Thank great. you very much. Oh, my pleasure. It was my pleasure. Thanks. Thank Glad you for being here. Take care. See you next week. Okay, bye. bye. Take care. This has been the Eco News Report. My name is Jennifer Colt with Humboldt Baykeeper, and I've been your host for the past half hour. I was speaking with Naomi Wagner and Alicia Littletree-Bales, who will be here a week from today at Founders Hall, room 118, at 5.30 p.m. for a panel discussion along with Ellen Taylor called Women and the Timber Wars, Feminism and the Frontline Struggle to Save the Redwoods. If you have any questions or comments about this program, please call our listener comment line at 826-6089. If you'd like to replay this interview or share it with others, you can go to the KHSU archives at khsu.org, or you can podcast the show. The Eco News Report is produced at Humboldt State University in cooperation with the North Coast Environmental Center. Many thanks to Fred McLaughlin for engineering as always. Join us again next week for the Eco News Report.